Thanks for listening in. Welcome to Leading Well, where we get to know leaders and how they make it happen. I'm your host, Tim Davis. And I'm his co-host, Alyssa. Welcome our guest, John Teague. John, how are you doing this morning? Doing real well. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. 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 So, John, what was life like as a child for you? Man, I was a military brat. Um, <laughs> I moved 16 times in my first 18 years. Wow. Uh, we had an event recently where uh, you asked, as a matter of fact, yeah. um, how many or what elementary school did you go to? And I figured out that I went to eight elementary schools. <laughs> I'm not a math major, but there's only six grades yeah, in elementary school, right? <laughs> that requires moving sometimes more than once a year. That is Crazy. Yeah, so I moved a lot. You ended up not building a lot of attachments and mm. learning a bit of autonomy. And it was a good upbringing. I had good parents. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, what uh, I love asking this question, like, what was the first time you feel like you recognized leadership in yourself? You know, maybe how old or what were you doing? Or Yeah, you know. you know, I struggled to find my place in life up until I went to Texas A&M. I was the ninth person in my family to go to A&M. It was, a, oh, it was okay. Did you have choices or no? Well, <laughs> my father, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, said that uh, I'll pay for you to go to school if you go to A&M. <laughs> By the way, school in those days was cheap. It was yeah. very inexpensive, and they did pay for it. I'm grateful for that. Uh, I struggled to find my place in life until I went to A&M. I was in the Corps of Cadets, and uh, I immediately, within the first two weeks, realized that I had I had arrived. It was all about mm. God and country, and I just thrived in the core mm. at A and M. Um, yeah, I had some. Yeah, even as a freshman, I had a, a bit of informal leadership, and uh, in that context, I was really able to tease it out. It was a wonderful, very beneficial experience. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, let's see. What was the first thing you noticed you had passion for? I mean. You know, it's. I don't know if this is really what you're asking me, but uh, I I always wanted to be good. Mm. Uh, even as a young boy, I wanted to be good. I I wasn't always in positions where that was teased out or rewarded, but uh, I, I very definitely felt that as a as a guiding principle. And uh, good good it, as in excellent, or good as in a good citizen, good hearted person. Yeah, it, good as in a good hearted person. Okay, I, I don't gotcha. know that I really uh, cleaved to uh, excellence. Uh, not really having a, a palette on which to 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 craft that, uh, but just goodness for goodness' sake. Mm-hmm. Um, I I became a believer in, in Christ uh, my junior year in college, but so those first twenty years, I I still had that out there and, and frankly, didn't always uh, arrive there. And, and uh, you know, I'm, there's a lot to be said around that necessarily. Um, but that, that really was what I was, what I was seeking, what I was mm. after. Um, and then once I became a believer in that context of going to A&M and actually being able to, uh, to make decisions that affect people's lives, I really do have a passion I developed then, and I still feel today for hey, making a positive impact on people's lives. Mm. Uh, currently, I'm the chief of police at Kaiser Police Department, and um, it's a great um, canvas upon mm. which to, to paint these values that I have and see them reproduced in people's lives. 
Uh, not necessarily that, that they become Christians. Uh, frankly, that isn't overtly part of my motive there. Uh, um, but to see their lives bettered mm. uh, because of those Christian ethics and principles, it's uh, very rewarding, frankly. At Kaiser, you know, we don't just teach people, we don't just hire cops and teach people to be more effective cops. Uh, I, I hope that when a person leaves employment at Kaiser Police Department, that they are a better person mm. for having worked here. Uh, we're real big about developing character. Uh, we hire people of character and we turn them into cops as opposed to hiring cops irrespective of their character. Character is king at Kaiser Police Department. What's, um, what's the biggest surprise that you've encountered in, in your industry? In my industry? Yeah, like in... In policing? Yes. Um, you know, the biggest surprise, and I arrived at it about, geez, 13, 14 years ago, was, was that we really did and do need policing reform. Mm. We need to reform how we police. Uh, forever, we were reactive. Crime happens, an event happens, and we respond. Um, and we, we need to get ahead of that. Uh, I was surprised at Kaiser PD when I, I brought this to Kaiser. I was surprised how quickly um, the guys uh, adapted to that. And uh, mm -hmm. so now our, our whole focus is to get ahead of crime and disorder and prevent it from happening in the first place by solving the underlying problem. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't expect them to, to cleave to that. I mean, right out of the chute, it, it was... We want that, too, and how do we do it? Hmm. And I'll tell you, one reason why is because, you know, we're, we're an aging—at we, that time, we're an aging department. Now we're a pretty young department again. You know, the guys, they, they want something more deeply satisfying than just giving people tickets and taking them to jail. Uh, that is, frankly, not satisfying. <laughs> uh, but when you see people's lives being improved in the community, um, it's deeply satisfying and rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, well, that's, you know, there's sometimes consequences for our, our actions, but but those are also learning opportunities, right? And so um, we've talked about that with previous guests. Uh, I think uh, I think it's pretty common that you learn more from your mistakes than you do maybe from your wins, you know? And so uh, in, interacting, whether it's I'm on the receiving end of, of uh, you know, law enforcement or, or not, I think... That's an opportunity, and I think the, what you're getting at is the way uh, this police force uh, acts towards those folks is is uh, really honoring, you know. In in even though there's tough things that have to happen, you know, yeah. So yeah, we don't. Uh, of course, I don't talk theology at work um, ever. Uh, it's not the place for it. I mean, uh, but there are Christian ethics that that work themselves out in mm -hmm. the in the workplace. Um, with regard to what you're just talking about, yeah, we we try to recognize the the frailty of humanity and the frailty of the human condition. I mean, people make mistakes. It's it's our nature to do that, and uh, we try to help people land on their feet. Uh, if we can not arrest and not issue citation, uh, we try to do that. Uh, not necessarily as a last resort, but we don't use that as our primary tool. We try to solve problems and help people land on their feet. Yeah. yeah. What's one of the ways, like you said, uh, something you're passionate about and trying to implement is the proactive policing? Like, what's one of those ways to help me kind of understand what's something that you do that is that proactive? Um, 
action? Um, you know, let me give you a, a, an example that's okay. 30 years old. We used to have a, a bar in this town, La Brisa, um, which was, I mean, it produced a lot of DUIs. Mm. And uh, back in the day when I was working the road, we would just sit around the corner waiting for people <laughs> to pull out of La Brisa and then look for probable cause to stop them and stop them and, and arrest them for DUI. And, uh, you know, that... That didn't solve the DUI problem coming out of that bar. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, it didn't make the streets any safer. You know, waiting for a DUI to happen before you <laughs> DUI to happen before you stop it by arrest. Uh -huh. uh, today, we would make a much more proactive, concerted effort to uh, keep those guys from, from driving uh, in the first place. You know, uh, we would... Work, we would endeavor to work alongside the business by interjecting a cop early in that process. Mm. Um, I remember Bob Wolf, the former sheriff of uh, Polk County, uh, one time commenting about, about a cop doing this, waiting for someone to drive DUI. And he said it just, it almost seemed immoral to him. Why didn't the cop just go stop the guy as he's walking to his car and interject himself to that moment? And at the time, that didn't really resonate with me, but now I totally get it. Mm. That's proactive policing. You're mm. stopping crime and disorder from happening in the first place. And it's better for everybody. Certainly, it's better for the guy that was going to drive and now isn't facing six, six to eight thousand dollars in fines, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. It's better for the people that he might have hit if he got into a crash. So you can see that's a very obvious example of proactive policing. Yeah, I mean that same tactic works in a lot of ways. You know, if you're going to paint a room, you can tape tape along the edge, and then you end up with less mistakes you have to fix, and the people end up with less paint on their ceiling. And you know, it's like that little step to it's not just for you to save time, but also for other people to uh, save themselves money and then keep the community safer. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, some of us have routines in our life, and uh, you know, I was just wondering if you have any that you know look either in your week or your day that you know you tend to do. You know? uh, well, when I first wake up, I check emails from the night before. Uh, I get to work and I check just a quick view of the Statesman Journal and the Oregonian. I've learned to try to get ahead of that. It's it's not very often, but too often there's something that appears in the Oregonian that affects me or my work. Mm. And uh, so I'll try to catch that. And then, uh, of course, there's my work day. And then, frankly, I go home and I work more. I, I have a a small farm, and my routine is just work, work, work. Wow. Uh, I'm ready for that to, to end, but at the yeah. moment, yeah. yeah. Um, we talked earlier about some of these guys that get up the crack of dawn and work out and such. Man, I tell you, I, I don't hit the sack till 11 o'clock at night, and yeah. I'm up at 5.30, and uh, so that's my routine is yep. work at work and work at home. There you go. Yeah, I'm getting tired just thinking about it. <laughs> so maybe retirement for you would look like not doing policing, but then working on the farm and spending more time doing that. You yeah, think? not and not having uh, the constraints of uh, 40 hours plus a commute on the other side of that. Yeah. In addition to that, yeah. Danielle right. Bethel said this. She's like, I wanna when I retire, I wanna just work my farm. And I was like, that's a good dream. It's good. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, what's uh, what are other influences, I mean, do you listen to music, any particular genres or, you know? Yeah, you know, I am a talk radio mm -hmm. uh, podcast guy or just a drive and think guy. Mm -hmm. I have a, I have about a 35-minute commute yeah. 
And uh, frankly, I love my commute. Very often I'm just driving in silence and thinking. I love it coming into work. I love it going home from work. Um, not so much a music guy. Yeah. I, I was as a kid, but as an adult, I'm, I like to think about things. And Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, uh, appreciating our, uh, you know, relationship and friendship. I, n- I know that one of the things I deeply respect about you is you are a, a deep thinker, you know. Uh, there's uh, not a lot of shallowness to the way you go about what you do at home, to what you do at work and, and what you do on your free time. So, I mean, it's an encouragement to me, you know, just to uh, be able to hang around you a little bit, you know. Um, what uh, what would you say is, did we ask what the biggest change you've seen maybe in your in your occupation or yeah i'm glad you brought back to that i was trying to figure out a way to get back to this early notion of policing reform yeah um you know i attended a an event at the police academy um let's see that would have been about 2012 um and happened to sit next to craig prince and uh it, it was an event uh, that had something to do with uh, some uh, racial component uh, between policing and and um, that was the discussion. I don't quite remember the event. I didn't know who Craig Prince was. Uh, he was the director of the Criminal Justice Commission, and I asked him what he's working on. He says he's working on uh, evidence-based uh, crime policy, and uh, I had never considered the notion of evidence-based policing. Well, you've heard of evidence-based medicine, for example. You know, sure. It took like 450 years for medicine to go from a mere art to uh, a science-based practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're at the place now in policing where we realize, you know, we don't have to just respond or react to crime. We can actually get ahead of it. Uh, we can do research and figure out what works uh, and employ that early to prevent crime and disorder from happening in the first place. I worked with Craig Prince on, on that. We ended up setting up the Center for Policing Excellence at DPSST. Um, we figured it would take like a 10-year a trajectory before this notion of, of non-reactive evidence-based policing would gain any traction in Oregon. Well, that was 2012. And uh, I tell you what, within just a few years, three to four years, we had some really serious gains. We had a a really positive trajectory. Regrettably, in the last two years, uh, you know, policing reform has taken a a step backward. Um, We we had a positive trajectory towards an evidence base, towards problem solving, uh, which is largely people neutral. It's largely race neutral because you're working on problems. And instead it's instead of now we've been kicked back on our heels as an industry where we're responding to all these accusations uh, that policing is inherently racist, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not discounting that there has been racism in policing. As in every industry, you know, we've had to evolve and get past that. Uh, but in the past couple of years, um, I, I'm just concerned that that traction may not find itself again in, in this drive towards an evidence-based for policing. Now, the reason why that's important in Little Kaiser, Oregon, the reason that's important in Oregon is for, for a long time, Oregon, with its single academy, every police officer in, in Oregon goes through one academy. It's unique that way across the 50 states. It's the only state where every cop goes to one academy. So they're able to influence the thinking of every cop mm. in Oregon. 
you had other nations um, coming to Oregon to look at our police academy and how we police and, the, and, the, and the, this trajectory towards police reformation and evidence-based policing. And uh, that's been slowed somewhat in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I hope it doesn't lose traction because mm-hmm. that's the future for fair and impartial policing is policing. Uh, hate to overstate this, but policing scientifically, getting ahead of the problems. Uh, we try to do that here at Kaiser. Um, you're always going to have to react to some crime. Yeah. Um, but uh, it works. Yeah. It's satisfying. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I meant. You know, uh, having thinkers uh, that are community minded like yourself, and we're we're fortunate to have a, a rich plethora of people in Kaiser and largely in Salem that that really think just beyond their own you know position and you know uh, the networking that that can happen. Yeah, um, I know. Like we've engaged with you guys recently. We're looking at finding a date. You guys are gonna. Uh, do a training for our staff on uh, de-escalation training, you know, that you guys can offer to us. And so it's rare, but on occasions, you know, whether it's a disgruntled person or whatever, we want to be able to handle that, you know, and we don't necessarily have experts in in those things. We we certainly have enough experience with that. (laughs) Wait a minute. You guys have interactions with disgruntled people? (laughs) That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Um, What is, uh, oh, when did you get your first cell phone, you think? I, how old were you? Can you remember? How old was I? I have no yeah. idea how old I was. I remember that phone that was a bag phone, right? <laughs> it was huge. I mean, yeah. right. The brick? Yes. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Oh, well, this, is, this predated the brick. You, know, well, you, had, you had a phone and a battery right. were connected but separate, and they were actually in a bag. Yeah. 65 cents per minute, as I recall. Yeah. By the way, when I started working at Kaiser, uh, my wife and I bought an old farmhouse in Silverton. It was a long-distance phone call. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean... It's amazing. I I went to Dallas High School, you know, for the last three years, and, uh, I mean... You actually just had to dial four digits when I back then. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. There wasn't even, the, you didn't have to do the 623 or the 503, right? But uh, that yeah. is crazy. Yeah. Things have changed. It was a long distance call to Dallas, you know? And so, yeah. And eventually now, r- really the only thing that matters is data. Like, we don't care where you're calling or yeah. whatever. It's it's how much how much internet are you using? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, bandwidth, you know, that's what you're getting charged for. And, that's right. And I tell people all the time, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I'm like, to think that I would pay fifty to sixty dollars a month for a cell phone bill, I'm like, nah, you got to be kidding me. But, yeah, I remember back in yeah. the mid '90s, um, I heard some prognosticator, I can't recall his name, saying that we're moving into what he called the information age. And I remember thinking, what in the heck is? How do you market that? Mm. How do you commercialize information? Of course, we're all about information now. It's amazing exactly. how things have changed in thirty years. The amount yeah. of times I'll be like, oh, what about, what is this thing? What does that mean? Google. Just ask Google. Just, oh, just like and that. And the answer is, I mean, I can even, I don't even have to get a phone. I can say, okay, Google, and it'll answer, it'll be like, hey, what do you need? And I'll answer my question. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, in our organization, we, we try to learn the people really well from personality assessments and that type of stuff. And then how those match and interact depending on your role. And we spend time trying to get as much of a person's time, it, we break it up into four categories, right? Your passions, your proficiencies, your dispassionate, and your non-proficient. And so we try to get the most amount of our time to be in those two 
areas of passion and proficiency. But uh, I would be, you know, if we broke it down into first, just introvert, extrovert, I'm definitely a, a raging extrovert. But how would you define yourself? Do you see yourself more as an introvert or extrovert? Oh, geez, I'm an introvert. Yeah, that's what I would have guessed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I uh, came back to Kaiser, um, in fact, when I went to Dallas, they were working to do a background on me. And I said, no, you need to do a background on me. And I came back to Kaiser, and they didn't feel I need to do my background because I already worked there, but they did do a psych exam on, on me. And now it's required by law to do a psych exam on all cops n- new to a new organization. And uh, when I met with a psychologist up in Portland, Casey Stewart, and he said, uh, do you want me to tell you what – I know, or do you want to? Do you want to tell me, and then I'll tell you whether you're right or not. <laughs> and, uh, he said, he said, on paper, you're too introverted to be a cop, to be a chief of police. He said, but you, what's interesting is you mitigate that with uh, intention. He called it intelligence, but not IQ. It's just purpose and intent. So you mitigate that. So I am absolutely an introvert. I enjoy being by myself and just thinking. I enjoy commuting with the, with the radio off deep in my thoughts. Uh, I'm not the kind of guy that gets charged up by being in the midst of a crowd. Uh, God bless you people that are. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, and I think in, in either an organization or a marriage or whatever. It takes some of both of that, right? My wife is the work behind the scenes, uh, deeply committed to details and, you know, and so on. And I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate (laughs) that. I love to pay bills on time and, and that type of stuff, but I get no energy from looking at line items and just making sure that that stuff, you know, is in place. Yeah. I would. Yeah. yeah, And no matter where we fall on the spectrum, we need to be, somewhat uh, stand above it and, and recognize where we're at and then purposely and intentionally use that, leverage it or mitigate it you know, yeah. for some greater good. Absolutely. Yeah. Either just within ourselves or within our organizations, right? So you'll look to, to fill in those gaps that, that you may not have of, of people who really enjoy that stuff too, you know? So. Well, and that's the beauty of being self-aware and like learning more about yourself. I'm sure you've, you know, as somebody who's a deep thinker, you're pretty self-aware of what you need. And as an introvert, you understand it's not like I can't interact with other people because I enjoy being by myself. Like, but you learn how to, you know, have those interactions intentional and uh, be able to like function really well in those areas. And I think that that's, that's something that's good about adulthood is you learn what you need and what you need to change. And it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we, we share this uh, uh, love for Jesus uh, together and, but some of the rest of those things like, uh, you know, I'm, we have a very small uh, house and a small lot, and and every couple of years I shrink our yard by putting in more rock and less uh-huh. yard. And so uh, to think to to go home and have to to do that, but of course you enjoy some of that at least, you know. And so that's just one of those many ways that you and I are different. Uh, I I look at that and just go, oh my gosh, no, thank you, you know. Oh so. yeah, it's funny. My <laughs> I have a my driveway is very long, and I have one neighbor, and uh, he is a He's a doctor. He makes a lot of money. And yesterday he came down to my place to borrow some farm equipment, and he is absolutely filthy. And uh, we were just commenting about he and I. We have you the resources. You both can afford to, to yeah. have somebody do this. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're both absolutely filthy doing what we find very rewarding. I want to get back real quick to something you said about uh, uh, 
arriving at adulthood and, uh, you know, then, then learning to be uh, stand above yourself and, and look at it yourself from a third party perspective, if you will. I can't quite just remember how you no, phrased okay. it, but my wife and I have uh, five children, one son, four daughters, and uh, we endeavored early. And, and I think this is because, as I mentioned, I... I looked for my place in life until I went to Texas A&M, and then I found it in the Corps of Cadets. But our, our purpose with our kids has always been for them to know who they are by the time they leave the house. Mm. So then they're not, they're not have this drag on the system of trying to mm. write. And yeah. uh, I'll tell you what, uh, I've got five great kids, and uh, it's a real gift when you don't struggle to know who you are late in life, mm. when you don't have to undo things, uh, when you have a good trajectory. By the way, when you when you know your trajectory, you can change it, right? True. And yeah. With intention. Yeah. And, uh, what a gift we can provide to our kids and to our employees. Right. And to the people around us if we if we help them to uh, to recognize and stand above their circumstances. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, getting to. Uh Getting to the empty nest uh, standpoint, you know, as as adults, you know, it's a uh, it's bittersweet. I I really love both of our kids and love being around them. We get opportunities to spend time with them, but uh, but they also each live on their own and pay taxes and you know yeah. and and earn a wage and and that type of stuff. So we're grateful for that too. But uh, man, John, time flies so fast. Uh, we'll certainly want to have you back again sometime. But uh, thanks so much for sharing your life and your time with us. We really appreciate it. Right on. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. If you'd like to learn more about John Teague, you can go 65 and a 45. And um, <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, yeah, thanks for listening in. And you can find us um, airing every Saturday on KSLM at 11 a.m. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Leading Well by Valor Mentoring.